Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and this is the Bengals Booth Podcast, the London Calling edition, as the Bengals travel across the Atlantic Ocean to face the L.A. Rams at Wembley Stadium. Coming up, I'll be joined by my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham, to discuss the hot-button topics right now for Bengals fans, including the trade deadline, the Cordy Glenn situation, and what, if anything, the Bengals can do to generate a running game. My locker room conversation this week is with punter Kevin Huber, who had one of the best games of his 11-year NFL career last week. We'll discuss that and if my recent induction into the UC Athletics Hall of Fame as a broadcaster has ruined it for guys like him who earned their way in with great athletic achievement. And in this week's Know the Foe segment, we'll get the lowdown on the Rams from Gary Klein, who covers the team for the LA Times. All of that is straight ahead, but first, here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since sleeper seats on an airplane. When the Bengals travel to London, many of the players will have sleeper seats, the so-called bed in the sky, where they can fully recline and get a good night's sleep in order to hit the ground running when the team arrives at 6.35 in the morning, London time. That's still 1.35 at night back in Cincinnati. The time change makes for a challenging trip, but hopefully the players will be rested and ready thanks to those sleeper seats. Now let's get to my conversation with Dave Lapham, and we start in a familiar place, the Bengals' struggling running game. Last week against Jacksonville, Joe Mixon had 10 carries for 2 yards, and Giovanni Bernard had 4 carries for 0. Surely they can do and must do better. But how? Lap, the Bengals are on a pace to rush for 850 yards this year. The lowest total in team history is 949 back in 1982, and that was a strike season when the Bengals only played 9 games. What would be the first couple of things you would try to get something going in the ground game? It, it is a real quandary, a nightmare, because let's, let's just t- take the last football game, Jacksonville. Watching some of that again, and the point of attack looks pretty good. Don't block the backside linebacker. You know, he just, he's not cut off. Crushes the play. Later, front side's crushed. Have no, have no opportunity at the play. And later, a tight end misses his block. You know, it, it's, it's equal opportunity participation. It is the dandest thing I've ever seen in terms of they can't come up with a clean snap. Uh, you know, everybody involved, five offensive linemen, if there's tight end involved, him, you know, wide receivers on the perimeter. Every single person, I just like to see a handful of plays during the course of a game where every single person that has a responsibility fulfills their responsibility. It has to be driving the coaches crazy because there, there are, you know, the play starts, you look at it, ooh, got a shot. <clears throat> no shot. Somebody totally misses, whiffs, um, goes the wrong way. They had people going the wrong way. Halfway through the season, that is inexcusable. The season's almost half over, and you got guys going the wrong way, whether it be a running back, whether it be an offensive lineman, whatever the case may be. Can't have it. Can't have that kind of stuff. Now you start to think, is the focus starting to slip? You know, is, is that part of it starting to go away? 
you know, the, oh, woe is me kind of thing. You just, you just can't, can't have it. But, uh, you know, I, again, they're, they're trying to find their identity, struggling to find And honestly, I, I really don't know what it, what it can be, what it is. I have no clue myself. I really don't know. And that, that's, a, that's a scary thing because right now they've rushed for 372 yards. They've given up 1,323. They've been outrushed by 951 yards in seven games. That's an average of 136 yards a game. They've been outrushed by a football field and a quarter plus, almost a football field and a half. That is nutso. They're averaging 3.9, 2.9. What am I talking about? 2.9 a carry, the opposition 5.2. Minus 2.3 is nutso. Basically, when the opponent carries the ball twice, they have a first down. When the Bengals carry it three times, they don't have a first down. You can't win football games that way. You just can't do it. I don't care if you got Vince Lombardi, Don Shula, Bill Walsh. You have a staff of uh, Hall of Famers, man. You just can't. You can't win games that way. Lap, the news broke Tuesday that the Falcons were trading former Bengals wide receiver Mohamed Sanu to the Patriots for a second-round pick. Last week, Jacksonville got two number ones and a number four for Jalen Ramsey. The trade deadline is coming up next Tuesday. Do you think teams are reaching out to the Bengals about possible trades? I, th- I think they probably have made phone calls. That, that wouldn't shock me at all. Um, Bill Belichick and Mike Brown have a great relationship. Uh, I, I, I would be stunned if Bill Belichick did not call just to see if A.J. Green might be available, depending on what Mike Brown wanted. But A.J. and Sanu are same same age, and they got a number two from Mohamed Sanu. The thing is, Mohamed Sanu hasn't been hurt recently like A.J. Green. So there's the question of, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily age. It's like, ooh, will he be available, you know, due to health concerns? He's also signed for one more year that helps. Yeah, definitely helps. Definitely helps. So, uh, you know, look at what they got for Jalen Ramsey. I mean, a haul, two number ones and a number four. So I'm sure, I don't think, you know, if Bill Belichick did talk to Mike Brown, I'm not sure it even gets to the point of, you know, what round picks. I, I think Mike probably politely said, uh, Bill, appreciate the interest, but no, we're keeping A.J. Green. He's our guy. We're, we're going to keep A.J. Green. Uh, we, we want him for years to come and, and that sort of thing. But I'm sure, I'm sure teams have called. I'm sure teams have called about A.J. Green, about Geno Adkins, you know, potentially Carlos Dunlap. Carlos Dunlap, a couple of weeks ago in the locker room, made it sound like he knew that people were calling. So his agent must have told him. He must have found out from teams that they have reached out to the Cincinnati Bengals and inquired about Carlos Dunlap. For him to say that to the media, oh, it's a business. I know it's a business. I'm sure they've called about, you know, they, they probably have called about me. So he's, he's heard something, and that's not a shock. Um, those kind of calls happen all the time. But I just don't think, um, you know, the Bengals will, will be in the market. And I think if they weren't in the market, it might be tough to strike a deal because, let's face it, um, when they give their players second and third bites of the apple, it's significant money. And a lot of people here in Bengal land think that the Bengals overvalue their veteran players. They think their, their guys are better than, than other people think they are. So if that's the case, they'd probably be asking way more than other people are willing to offer. And, you know, it's, it's tough to make deals at that point. But that Mohammed Sanu deal is very interesting. I mean, Patriots needed, needed them. And they gave up some value. I think I think that's a good deal for for Atlanta to get a second round pick. Now it'll it'll basically be a third. You know, New England second is like an early three. Uh, it's going to be so late after they win another Super Bowl, probably. <laughs> but um, still, that's that's a decent pick from Mohamed Sanu. 
The Bears are 3-3. Three and three. Mitchell Trubisky is averaging the fewest passing yards per game of any full-time quarterback. you think there's any chance the Bears reach out about Andy Dalton? I, they might, yeah. I bet they reach out about, you know, a few quarterbacks. And uh, they, may, they may realize that um, historically, again, the Bengals don't move players, particularly a quarterback. Um, so they may reach out elsewhere. And I, there's going to be other quarterbacks around the league that probably fall into the same category. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, the performance he put on last week is like, that's, that's basically what you think Aaron Rodgers might be able to do any given week. He's about the only guy in the league, you know, maybe maybe one other. You know, maybe Mahomes can do that kind of thing. But there's there's no more than three of them walking the streets. So everybody else kind of falls into a category where they need a lot of support to put up, you know, significant numbers in the league for sure. Lap, the Bengals 0-7 start has the doomsayers talking about the 1990s when things obviously did not go well. But I want to go back to our first five years together in the booth, 2011 to 2015, when the Bengals went to the playoffs every year. And the reason why they did that, or probably the biggest reason, was that from 2009 to 2014, they had six straight excellent drafts with at least three really good players every year. In 2012, they drafted five really good ones and signed Vontez Perfect as an undrafted free agent. The 2015 draft was a disaster. C.J. Uzama is the only guy left. The last five drafts really haven't been home runs. Injuries have been a factor. I guess my question is, what happened? Why did they go from drafting so well to not doing nearly as well? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think, I think it's just like, like anything. If you, uh, as an organization, let's face it, the Bengals – theory and there are other teams in the league that do it Seattle you can name off a bunch of teams they build through the draft and they're going to they're going to draft develop retain that's their mantra and when you do that when you live by the draft you die by the draft and um, they they put their lease every week how many players the Bengals have drafted are still in the league and it's like second usually no no worse than third but it's usually in the top three so but that's still going back to those drafts where they had those consecutive, you know, put the bat on the ball regularly. And some of those guys are still in the league. That shows you how good they were in selecting in those particular drafts. The last few you're talking about, I'd like to see how many guys are still in the league. You know, I, I bet the numbers are, are down. Um, and if you're not going to supplement it with, you know, serious free agency intent or trades or whatever, and your philosophy is – draft, develop, retain, you are. You're, you're basically putting all your eggs in that one phase of, of building a roster. And when you have a situation like they had, we've talked about with Cedric Boy and Fisher, set you back. I mean, the, the left, that left tackle position is, is, again, a microcosm of what's, what's happened. Those two don't pan out. Um, we saw Cedric Boy with the Jaguars, and, and Fisher's out of the game. Um, and, and, and then trade for Cordy Glenn. And look what's going on with the Cordy Glenn fiasco. So that left tackle is, is, is got, you know, like a, a black cloud hanging over it. Uh, and, then, and then you try to address it with the 11th pick in the draft. And uh, Jonah Williams rips a, a rotator or a um, labrum, tears his labrum before training camp even starts. So, man, you're, you're – uh, even try to trade 
to solve that. And you drafted three different guys. And Jonah Williams' school's still out. I'm not saying Jonah Williams isn't going to be a great player for a decade, but this year uh, they haven't won a football game, and he's not responsible for any of it. But they were hoping that he'd be at that left tackle position solidifying it. So, um, yeah, it's you're, there's a lot of pressure to, to put your bat on the ball as uh, at, a, at a high, high percentage, high, high ratio, if that's the way, if that's the only way that you've decided you're going to try to build your franchise. Part of that Cordy Glenn trade was moving backward in the first round. The Correct. Bengals had the number 12 pick. They went backward to select a Billy Price. And when you look at some of the guys they could have had at number 12, Derwin James was the 17th pick in that draft. Leighton Vander Esch was the 19th pick in the draft. I remember how much the Bengals loved him going into that draft. Imagine what either of those guys would be doing for the Bengals' defense. Yeah, you can can go back historically, you know, um, on a lot of drafts and say the what-ifs. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking the other day when I was watching Lamar Jackson just tool the Seattle Seahawks like he tooled the Bengals. I mean... Ozzie Newsom said, enough. This guy's a first-round pick. Can't let this guy slide out of the first round. He's a first-round talent athletically. Ozzie Newsom said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be the one. I mean, he went all the way to the end of the, end of the draft in that first round. And I bet there's a lot of franchises in the NFL right now that are saying, man. But the, the thing that they decided to do as a franchise is we're not going to try to fit him into something that doesn't work. We are going to say what he did at Louisville, we're implementing here and we're we're going that way. We're making sure that he we set him up to succeed, not to fail. And that's just a great organizational you know decision on many levels by the Baltimore Ravens. And um, you know sometimes when you when you start drafting specifically for need, and you're trying to say can that guy translate from what he's doing in college to what we're doing here with our scheme? It's similar, but can he translate? The better way to go is the way Baltimore and others are doing now. Arizona's doing, you know, take what that guy did so well in college and implement it in the National Football League. And that's why these young quarterbacks are succeeding. Instead of trying to put a square peg in a round hole, they've got the same shapes. And these, these young guys are fitting a lot better and a lot more quickly. Getting back to Cordy Glenn, is there a way out of this mess? Man, you know, if I'm a player in that locker room, that, that's, a, that's a totally unnecessary distraction and you know if if everything that happened rumored to be happened have happened last week did um, my understanding is he when he went out to practice he didn't he didn't really feel like he should be going out to practice but this independent doctor in in Pittsburgh said that you're cleared so they said you got to go out there and he went out there and Jim Turner said and hit the two men sled and he put two hands on it walked away and you know of course that started a beef and then uh, after practice on Wednesday he went home didn't hang around, go to the meetings, goes home, and basically says, you know, t- uh, you know, to, to uh, Coach Taylor, just cut me. And, uh, of course, yeah, just cut me. I want to collect my $10, $11 million and not have to do anything for it. They're not going to do that. And he doesn't come the next day, so he's, he's suspended. And I wonder if it's suspended with pay or suspended without pay. It's all defined by the collective bargaining agreement. But in, when you have any questions like, oh, just get rid of them. Well, you get just get rid of them, I and mean, that's the salary cap concern. That's a salary cap hit of not seven figures, eight figures, eight-figure hit to your cap. And so now you're trying to figure out with the collective bargaining agreement, what are the steps? If there are five steps, you can't go from one to five. You have to go one, two, three. You know, can't go one to three. 
I mean, you have to take it step by step in this process. So I'm not familiar enough with the collective bargaining agreement to see if there are any things you can do to protect yourself as an organization or, you know, and what Cordy Glenn can do on his, his behalf with the union as a player. But right now, the thing's a mess. It is just a country hot mess. And uh, I don't know how it's gonna. I don't know how it's gonna unfold and unsort. But I, if I'm a teammate, and, and honestly, you know, when I watch the interaction between Cordy and his teammates, there is none. There is none. Zero. So it's a. You know, I think they decided the best thing to do is suspend him or you know try to separate him from from the locker room because it's not. Uh, it's not an easy situation, and players are gonna sympathize to some extent because. CTE and you know hey all concussions are, are different but Alex Erickson he has a concussion a few days later he's catching uh, four balls in the in the uh, in the second quarter for you know 93 yards and he's got uh, you know eight catches for 137 during the course of the game uh, and I'm not saying that his concussion is the same as Cordy Glenn's I'm not trying to say that at all they're all different but I mean you talk about North and South Pole Whew. That's a pretty good example right there. The team is off to London as the Bengals take on the defending NFC champion Rams. L.A. snapped a three-game losing streak last Sunday, hammering the Falcons 37-10. Give me a scenario for the Bengals pulling off the shocker in London. Well, the easiest thing to think of is is the Rams have to help. (laughs) The Rams have to self-destruct. The Rams have to turn the ball over. The Bengals went minus four last week and and lost a game that they had a 10-9 lead going into the fourth quarter and have, uh, you know, three interceptions in the fourth quarter. They had a fumble, I think, in the third, but, uh, but three interceptions in the fourth. So you have, a, you have a three turnover quarter. That's the kind of thing the Rams are going to have to help with, be it fumble, be it interception, um, be it, you know, some sort of miscue like that. And the Bengals have to play a very clean game in that regard because, you know, looking at them right now, 15 giveaways, 31st in the league. They're minus nine. That's 30th in the league. It, the the the, flip, the script is going to have to flip for the Bengals to compete with the Rams. The Rams are going to have to be the, the generous ones, and the Bengals are going to have to be the selfish ones taking all those, those extra possessions. And, and I think that the red zone defense has to stay the way it's been playing. I mean, that, they're, they're doing a, a really good job in the red zone. They find themselves fourth in the NFL now, red zone touchdown percentage allowed. They, they have two teams the Bengals have played. Arizona and Jacksonville both went one touchdown and six opportunities in the red zone. They did it twice. Two touchdowns and 12 red zone possessions. I mean, you, you look at it, I, the Bengals' defense has been in the red zone 27 times, 30th in the league. They've only allowed 11 touchdowns, tied for eighth in the league. So they have really, when the field's compressed, they don't have to worry about the ball going over their head and the the, the, the tricks and the gadget and the misdirection is, is less of an issue because the field's so compressed. They play pretty good. They play a lot better defense. The other thing that has to continue to happen, if the Bengals do turn it over, on the Bengals' 15 giveaways, the defense has allowed five field goals, 15 points. That's unbelievably good. I mean, that's, that might be the best in the league. And one of the, one of the turnovers, it was a pick six, so they had nothing to do with any of it. So say 14 of the turnovers. 14 turnovers, they've allowed 15 points. Still pretty, pretty damn strong. Yeah. And uh, if, they, if they continue to... You know, play complimentary football that way. If the Bengals do have a mistake and they, you know, don't let it turn into a big mistake, then they have a chance. They have a chance. 
lap. The Rams are averaging 27 points a game, tied for seventh in the NFL, so they're not exactly struggling, but it is down a little bit from 32 points last year, and they only scored three points in the Super Bowl loss to the Patriots. To what extent has the league caught up to the Rams' offense? I, I think there's probably something to that. Defensive coordinators, you give them you know, an opportunity, they're going to figure out a way to defend things. I think the other part of it is 40% of the offensive line's new. Sullivan, their center, retired. Uh, their left guard left in free agency, and they have a new guy at the left guard position. Stafford, the, or I think it was Safford, the, the big left guard, left in free agency. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a factor. You, you see how new pieces can, can take, take a while. And Gurley's not the Gurley of old. They, they say that that knee has had some sort of a degeneration, whatever it is. So uh, they're not they're not clicking with with uh, all the cylinders in the engine that they were clicking with when they were, you know, executing at such a high level. So I think the execution slipped some. I think defensive coordinators have caught up some, and uh, I think the combination of it is is what you're talking about. They 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 win their first three games three and zero, and then they lose three in a row. So the model of inconsistency there. But they they did win. I mean, Tampa Bay hung 55 points on them. I can't fathom that. With Aaron Donald and Fowler and those guys, how the hell did Jameis Winston hang 55 on them? That's, that's remarkable to me. They scored over 40. You know, their offense wasn't the problem there. If I, as I'm looking at, their, at their, you know, their prior games, that one jumped out at me like, what? 55 to 40. Man, Seattle 30 to 29. You know, I can see that, I guess, a little bit. But that defense, I mean, they gave up 85 points in two weeks. 85 points to Tampa Bay and Seattle in a two-week stretch. Crazy. In the National Football League, crazy. Thanks, Lap. In that shocking 55-40 to loss to Tampa Bay, Jameis Winston threw for 385 yards and four touchdowns. But perhaps more significantly, the Buccaneers' defense picked off three Jared Goff passes and recovered one of his fumbles. One positive last week in the Bengals' loss to Jacksonville was the play of the special teams. Brandon Wilson had a 61-yard kickoff return and now has enough attempts to qualify as the NFL leader in kickoff return average. He's at 37.4 yards on nine attempts. And punter Kevin Huber was also outstanding, consistently pinning the Jags deep in their own territory. I spoke to the 2014 Pro Bowler, this week. Kev, last Sunday was your 170th NFL game, including playoffs. You averaged 48 yards a punt, 46 yards net. Jacksonville started drives from the 1, the 3, and the 9. Was game number 170 one of your all-time best, personally? Yeah, that was up there. That was a good game all around. Um, you know, they do a lot, a lot of variety of things on punt rush, so we had a lot of the O-line did a great job. Uh, protecting that they do a lot of work they you know they change schemes up from week to week um you know then the gunners did a great job getting down there making those plays um keep the ball in the end zone so it was all around you know good effort by the entire punt team you know and the entire special teams unit for that matter um you know it was, it was a big point of emphasis won the game you know and that field position was a big key so um you know we did a good job executing that we're visiting with kevin huber this is your 11th nfl season has punting changed and have you changed over the course of 11 years yeah, punting's definitely changed. You know, it's. Uh, I think it's looked at more and more as a weapon, and uh, uh, the ability to uh, control field position um, and really, um, you know, eliminate returners because there's a lot of good returners right now, a lot of fast guys. So to uh, you know, the, the, I think the punt team's been used a lot to uh, really rely on them for 
flipping the field, you know, controlling field position, um, I think a lot more than it was really looked at in the past. And I think it kind of shows that the quality of punters that are coming out now, they're, they're just getting better and better, and they can hit the ball further with the control. So, you know, it's just you know, something you've got to keep up with. And, uh, you know, I think I just kind of just, you know, I've, been a, I've tried to do a good job of just seeing how things are changing and adapt to it. You're 34. Sam Cook of the Ravens is 37. Dustin Colquitt of the Chiefs is 37. Donnie Jones was punting last year at 38. Why are punters lasting longer? Um, I think for that very reason I just talked about is they are, uh, you know, they're seeing what it takes to play and they're doing what it takes. I think it's, uh, you know, there's a lot more, you know, lifting weights involved just to get stronger, to keep up with these young guys that are coming in a lot stronger than they have been in past years. Um, you know, so I think that's one of the biggest things is just strength of these younger guys coming out that we got to do more, you know, to keep our job so they don't come in and, uh, you know, take us take our job. We're visiting with Kevin Huber. For seven years, you were the holder on field goals and points after for Mike Nugent, who has resurfaced in the NFL with the New England Patriots. Have you guys been in touch? And what was your reaction to him getting that opportunity? Yeah, I was happy for him. Um, you know, I know Mike. Mike always stays in shape and stays ready to go. So it didn't surprise me one bit. Um, but, yeah, I texted him uh, – Right after I heard it happen, just tell him congrats and, uh, you know, tell him we see him in a couple of weeks. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll be able to come out and meet me for dinner. I'm not sure what the rules are, but uh, we'll see. Knowing Belichick, it's probably a no-go. Yeah. Kevin, you went to the playoffs in six of your first seven seasons with the Bengals, and the team is obviously struggling this year. As somebody who grew up here, how difficult is this for you? Um, you know, it's just, you know, I, you know, being here for the amount of years I've been here, you know what it takes, to, you know, the time it takes, the effort it takes the coaches and the players um you know and it, it's just tough to be a part of it just because you know how much effort's being put in and you know you feel for the guys that you know all the coaches that have you know they're, they're working their butts off to you know tr- to try to get that first one of the season so you know i think everybody's still everybody's still really dialed and everybody's really you know wanting to get that first win we're all on the same page we know we can get there um we just gotta put all the air for a game our buddy Dave Lapham was on a Bengals team that started a season 0-8, and he says he would send his son to take the garbage out to the curb because he was just he didn't even want to see people at that point. Do you have some of the same things going on where maybe you and your wife are reluctant to go out to dinner or anything because of that? Uh, not really because luckily people really don't recognize me. <laughs> I'm just your normal six-foot-one guy that, you know. I'm no different than the rest of the guys at the restaurant, so I don't really have that issue. It's good to be the punter, I guess. This is your second trip to London. What stood out about the first? Well, it was a long trip to tie. <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I think not knowing the first time, you know, what was involved, it was uh, a little bit of shocks to get used to the time change in such, such a short period of time. Um, I think going back to the second time, you're kind of used to it. Now you know what to expect, so there's really no... You know, there's nothing to, uh, that's going to catch you off guard. So I think it'll be a lot, lot easier the second time around. Can you sleep on a plane? Do you have movies downloaded? Do you have a good book ready to go? How are you going to deal with that? I'm going to try to sleep. Um, just because the time change, you know, if you don't sleep, it's going to be a rough weekend. So uh, I, I think do whatever I can get get to sleep. Um, and uh, maybe I'll try to wake up really early tonight to start getting used to it. But um, yeah, I think just try to get some sleep. If I, if, I'm not, if I turn the TV on, I'm not going to bed. So, All right, last thing for Kevin Huber. You are a deserving member of the University of Cincinnati Athletics Hall of Fame. I was incredibly honored to be inducted last weekend, but have I cheapened it for guys like you that really earned their way into that Hall of Fame? Oh, absolutely not. You were more <laughs> deserving than I was. Um, <laughs> no, you, you've definitely not, you definitely did not cheapen it, and uh, yeah, congratulations on that.
I feel much better now. Congratulations on a great game last week. Uh, last week, do it again at Wembley Stadium. I appreciate it. That's Kevin Huber. The website Pro Football Focus has Huber ranked as the 11th best punter in the NFL this year. Now time for this week's Know the Foe interview as we do a deep dive into the Bengals' upcoming opponent. After going 11-5 in Sean McVay's first season and 13-3 with a trip to the Super Bowl in his second, the Rams have not been as dominant this year. They snapped a three-game losing streak last Sunday with a 37-10 win over Atlanta and bring a 4-3 record into Sunday's game. Gary Klein covers the Rams for the LA Times and joined Dave Lapham and me on the Bengals game plan show this week. I started our conversation by asking him what the Rams' biggest issues have been to date. Well, the main issue, or at least the one that uh, got all the attention coming into the season, of course, was the condition of Todd Gurley's left knee and how that would affect not only Gurley but the entire Rams' offense. Uh, There have also been some issues with the offensive line that have... uh, slowed down a unit that pretty much dominated the NFL over the last two seasons. So Gurley's um, condition and the way Sean McVay has limited his touches, the turnover in the offensive line and also some injuries, uh, and also some injuries on defense have all played a role in the Rams struggling through that three-game losing streak before finally winning last week. So do you think Sullivan obviously retires at the center position uh, Safford goes in free agency, so your your center and your left guard move on for different reasons. Do you think at this point, approaching midseason, that the offensive line is starting to gel? And a, a part B to that question is uh, Andrew Whitworth still playing at a at a decently high level, or what's what's his play been like recently? The entire offensive line really, I think, has struggled with consistency. Uh, you mentioned the departures of Sullivan and Saffold. They were replaced by second-year pros who had never started. And uh, Brian Allen is playing center. Joe Noteboom was playing left guard alongside Whitworth, but he suffered a knee injury. So uh, in this last game, rookie David Edwards, who only played tackle in college, started at guard and did a pretty good job. Uh, I think we'll have to see. We're almost through the halfway point of the season. And you have to remember the Rams over the last two seasons were maybe the only NFL team that started the same five guys in every single game, and that was over two seasons. So they've missed that. They've missed Saffold. In regard to Whitworth, he's still, I think, you know, obviously going strong, playing at his age, but playing against, with, or not against, but with some younger teammates, uh, I think has put maybe some added pressure on him, and he's still performing at a high level, although I think it's fair to say that uh, he has not been quite as dominant as he was uh, earlier in his career. Gary Klein from the L.A. Times is our guest. Can you explain how Tampa Bay scored 55 points against the Rams, Gary? Really? You know what? Uh, Tampa Bay came into that game, and uh, Jameis Winston played like the number one pick. I think, you know, people envisioned, people in Tampa probably uh, hoped for when they took him. He He played phenomenally, really did a great job. Uh, Mike Evans was terrific, and the Rams had some defensive breakdowns. uh, And Shaquille Barrett just went crazy and really terrorized that Rams offensive line on both ends of it. So uh, Tampa Bay obviously played its best game of the season. The Rams uh, talked about that not being a trap game, if you will, but uh, it really did sneak up on them. 
and uh, they happened to run into uh, Jameis Winston on a bad day for the Rams. 18 sacks for the Rams by six different players. Usually 18 sacks, there's like 11 guys. They're blitzing corners. They're blitzing safeties. Matthews has six. And real quick, is injury, is he, is he Matthews? Clay Matthews will be out at least, I would think, uh, two, he'll be out this game for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if he also uh, is out against the Steelers after the Rams come back from the bye. So they miss him. They miss his leadership. They miss those six sacks that would have yep. you know, probably grown had he uh, remained healthy. Um, but I think um, the addition, and I'm sure we'll get this, the, the addition of Jalen Ramsey on the back end kind of opens right. things up. For, uh, for that rush, and we saw what happened this past week against the Falcons. Dante Fowler had three sacks. Aaron Donald, a traditionally, even though he finishes with so many sacks at the end of each year, he's not a super-fast starter. He's starting to heat up. Uh, so I think that Rams pass rush, again, with the addition of uh, Ramsey, we're going to see a, a lot more action, I think, a lot more pressure. Yeah, I think, you know, it was 15 sacks out of three guys with Matthew six. He's still, you know, you don't take those sacks away, although he won't be adding to it. Fowler has five after the three last week and a forced fumble. Donald has four. He had a sack and a forced fumble, I believe, as well. So, I mean, with Ramsey, as, as everybody knows, I mean, coverage pressure, it's like the hand fit in the glove. You know, it's like one, one feeds off the other. So, with Ramsey tightening up coverage, there's going to be more pressure possibilities and with the pressure possibilities increasing Ramsey's going to eat too with with big play potential that that trade how big was that trade how excited was the locker room about getting Jalen Ramsey I think players uh, you know who knew him and there are a few in that locker room Blake Bortles obviously played quarterback for the Jaguars Dante Fowler was there before he joined the Rams in a trade deadline deal uh, before last season so they knew what they were getting and I think with uh, the trade of Marcus Peters uh, and with Aqib Talib on injured reserve, it was a well-needed uh, shot for that defense. Now, the Rams gave up a lot with two number one picks and a fourth-round pick, but they are confident that they're going to be able to sign Ramsey for the long term. And I think the way they look at it is there are not that many true lockdown cornerbacks in the NFL. And if you have the opportunity to get one, uh, not only for the short term, but possibly for the long term, you've got to do that. And yep. uh, I think he made an immediate impact against the Falcons, uh, not only with his coverage of Julio Jones and the jawing back and forth, but also the forced fumble. I think more than anything, uh, that showed the Rams uh, that they have added a playmaker to a defense that, uh, that was in need of one. A few more questions for Gary Klein, who covers the Rams for the L.A. Times. What was the reaction in L.A. when the Bengals hired Zach Taylor? Well, I think it, on some level uh, it was not surprising, just given that uh, the Packers had hired Matt LaFleur. Uh, it, uh, it was obvious that NFL teams are or were enamored with the McVay effect. Everyone was looking for the next Sean McVay. So I don't think it came as a real surprise to people in L.A. Uh, I think that they looked at it as like, yeah, he's probably the next logical uh, successor if this, if that, what happened with Lafleur continues, so uh, obviously uh, the Bengals with with Taylor have not gotten off to a great start. But I know historically this isn't the first time, right? It's I think it's the seventh time this has happened. 
if I'm not mistaken from reading uh, some of the stuff coming out of Cincinnati. Um, but I think that uh, the people who are in Los Angeles who know Zach Taylor um, think he's probably going to try and follow a similar kind of uh, path that uh, McVeigh laid out. And uh, they seem to be rooting for him and confident that uh, he'll, have success, he'll have some success uh, once he gets that culture kind of uh, fully implemented. What do you think that the Sean McVay, I mean, it, it's been incredible, the Sean McVay aura about him. What, as, as a media member, when you deal with Sean McVay, what is the most impressive thing? And what do you think that a guy like Zach Taylor could have picked up from a Sean McVay? Well, it struck me in, in, the, in the two years that I uh, got to know Zach, very similar to Sean in terms of uh, communication, kind of oriented. And um, all of us who've watched the NFL for a long time, I think we've seen a shift in the kinds of personalities of coaches that are, that are being successful. I mean, there's certainly some old school guys like Bill Pelichick that still get it done at the, at the right. highest level. But I think some of these younger coaches, especially the ones that uh, are geared towards, uh, you know, open communication as long as well as football smarts, in a league that seems to be getting younger and younger and younger in terms of the turnover of players, uh, I think those these guys can be successful. Or at least Sean McVay proved that with a, you know, a very very good football mind and those communication skills uh, that he can win. And so uh, I'm guessing the Bengals were looking for similar kinds of traits when they, or they saw those when they spoke and interviewed uh, Zach Taylor. Uh, the Packers, I'm sure, saw the same thing with Matt LaFleur. And uh, so we'll see. It's funny you mention that because uh, the, the story I'm writing for tomorrow, or at least my notebook, it kind of deals with the fact that uh, the results are mixed so far. You know, with LaFleur 6-1 and one and Zach at 0-7, uh, we'll see how this plays out, not only over the end of this season, but uh, in seasons to come. Common denominator for Sean McVay and now LaFleur in Green Bay, experienced defensive coordinator, been around the league. Uh, both had been prior head coaches as defensive coordinators, you know, supporting those young coaches. Wade Phillips, what has he meant to Sean McVay? And obviously, you know, up, up in uh, Green Bay, they, they followed the same type of pattern, having that experience, maybe more old school coaching philosophy like you're talking about in Wade Phillips and, and what they did up in Green Bay as well. What, what has Wade Phillips meant to Sean McVay's success? I think he, he in, shares a, a very big role in it. Uh, I think one of the reasons, though, is that uh, Wade Phillips seems pretty open-minded to new thinking. I mean, obviously, he's got his systems. He's got his way right. of doing things. But right. it, it has struck me from the beginning that he welcomed uh, the way that McVeigh operates. And, you know, his son, Wes Phillips, coached with McVeigh in Washington, so he knew about him. He knew about that. Uh, yep. But I don't think you can underestimate the fact, as you point out, that McVeigh came in with a very ex experienced defensive coordinator and a very experienced and talented special teams guy in John Fossil. So right, the only right. thing that McVeigh, the only thing, I don't want to say the only thing, because the head coach obviously has innumerable responsibilities, but McVeigh could concentrate on what he knew best, which was the offense, and what he does best, which is communicate with people, not only his staff, but his players. And the, he got the players to respond, the coaches respond. And uh, that's why, as a writer, it was so interesting to cover uh, this last month because this is the first time that they were really going through some adversity with those three losses, 
and you could tell there was a sigh of relief when they beat uh, the Falcons because mm-hmm. they think they kind of got through that. We'll see if they can uh, continue it through the rest of the season. Uh, but that was something new for Sean McVay in his young coaching career. My thanks to Gary Klein, and here's a quick reminder that if you are making the trip to London or live in the U.K., we will be broadcasting the Bengals Pep Rally Show from the Admiralty, the Bengals' official bar, on Friday from 5 to 8 London time. The show will then air in Cincinnati in its normal 3 to 6 time slot. Our guests will include the great Ken Anderson, so if you are in London for the game, we hope to see you on Friday at the Admiralty. It should be a fun night. That's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you have time, give it a rating or share a comment. Five-star ratings help more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.